To those who are persistent in doing what is good and who seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. To those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there's only indignation and wrath. Romans 2, verse 7. If you were to ask most people, is it a good thing to seek after glory? A very large number of us would probably say no. They would consider pursuing glory as being a sign of egotism or selfish ambition. But in the verse we just quoted, Paul actually refers to these two motives, pursuing glory versus selfish ambition, as being totally opposite of each other. He's saying that selfish ambition, which is rooted in greed, lust, and self-centered ungodliness, is overcome in us when we choose rather to pursue glory. We don't have a clear understanding, evidently, of what it means to pursue glory and honor. Maybe it's just a matter of a difference in terminology, but if that's the reason, we must not have a biblical grasp of what it means to reject selfish ambition by pursuing glory. I don't think we know what glory is. We have some underdeveloped ideas because we use the word a lot, but from the the Scripture's point of view, I don't think we know what it is. And we need to know what it is because the Scripture talks so much about it. In fact, Scripture talks so much about it that we tend, therefore, to completely overlook it. It's used so often in scriptural quotations and, and, and religious jargon that maybe we don't really have a clue what we're talking about. The Bible's crammed full of the word and, and its variations, and we use that word in a number of ways in English without fully knowing what we mean when we use it. So really there's no such thing as a Bible word for glory. Glory is an English word. The word for glory in Hebrew, among other words, is kavod. In Greek, it's doxa. That doesn't help us at all, does it? We're not going to try to do a thorough rundown of every variation of the word in scriptures, though that would be a good thing for you to do on your own time sometime. Our goal here is to maybe correct some wrong ideas, but more importantly, hopefully awaken some great ideas in hopes that a better understanding of the thread of the word glory in Scripture can help us move deeper into the glory of God. Now, the lack of understanding of the variations of the word is what causes so many of us to think that the pursuit of glory is an ego-driven lust for selfishness. We've taken a word that is so large that it takes compound phrases in Greek to try to begin to communicate it and we have shrunk that down to a few shallow concepts. Yes, we do know it has other meanings than being a glory hound, somebody who hogs the stage. But mostly we tend to think of examples like the ball player who never passes the ball off to teammates so he can get the point and get all the glory. We do know, if it's referring to God, it carries the concept of shining and brightness, but it also carries the idea of weight, kavod in Hebrew, heaviness, substance, usually of great value. So the weight of glory, Paul refers to, becomes a reference to the weight of the gold or precious stones inlaid in the king's robe, for instance. I mean, that's not what Paul was referring to, but that's the idea. But then, when we begin to consider phrases like, God gets all the glory, that can conjure images of God for some of us, depending on how damaged we may be, of thinking God is the ball hog. God has to get all the glory. Well, so-and-so was trying to shine tonight, we say. What we mean is he was hogging the ball in order to get all the glory. So, Getting all the glory means shining or gaining favorable attention. God shines and should get favorable attention, but when people hog the ball, we know that's bad. But we think of God as being supposed to get all the glory, and we think that's good. But if we're thoughtful at all, we may ask ourselves, well, what does God need more glory for? 
I'm not trying to be funny here, not at all. God forbid that we should make levity of the subject of God's glory. No, I'm not trying to be funny, but I'm trying to help us deal with wrong or immature images that distort the truth in order that we can stop being hindered by that wrong concept in our worship and our intimacy with God. If he's shiny, well, does he need to be shinier? If we help him be shinier, what exactly have we accomplished when we do that? And if it's supposed to be only God that gets any glory, why would Paul refer to those who persistently pursue glory and honor as being those God is pleased with? There must be a huge difference between pursuing glory and honor on the one hand and being driven by selfish ambition on the other. So why do we tend to think they are the same thing? Because glory is way more than mere brightness or accolades or being celebrated. Let's try to cut to the chase. God's glory is not anything he needs us to give him for his own sake. In the first place, God's glory is both an attribute of God, it is what God is. And when it is extended in an action towards man, it is the fullest expression of God's best his love, his wisdom, his goodness, his beauty, his grandeur, his holiness, for the purpose of giving to man, of manifesting life, of rebuking evil. His glory cannot be increased in himself. Nothing we can offer him increases him. Nothing we deny him can diminish him. God receives glory only in the sense that people are made aware of his glory when his children pursue glory. In other words, it's not really a vertical thing, it's a horizontal thing. God shines when his children shine. So does that mean we always have to shine in our own eyes or in the eyes of others for God to be glorified? No. He is glorified even more when in the face of hardship, when there seems to be no shining light that we still trust his character even in the dark. His glory is demonstrated to the principalities and powers. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, whenever the people of God trust God's wisdom to bring them through terrible times, God's glory is shining in that dark. It may be safe to say that the greatest glory of God is manifested in his people when they are facing the hardest times and yet still trust him through them. C.S. Lewis said the real glory of God cannot be diminished by men's rejection of God any more than the sun can be dimmed in the least by a lunatic writing the word darkness across a wall. Giving God glory means for humans living horizontally that we demonstrate the reality of the true and living God by obeying him before the eyes of each other. This is what Paul meant when he said to those who pursue glory and honor, God will give life. Now, the glory of God means a lot more than that, but we have to at least begin there. But still, what then is glory? To make it as concise as possible without dimming its meaning, let's go to Exodus 24, verses 10 and 17, and Exodus 33, verses 18, 19, 22 through 23. Exodus 24, 10, 17. They saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet what appeared like a paved work of sapphire stone. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire. Exodus 33, 18, 19, 22 through 23. And Moses said, I beseech you, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. You will see my afterglow, but my face you will not see. Exodus 40, verse 34. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now from these introductory verses, we know the following about the glory of God. It is the outflow of his goodness toward his creation in a tangible, even visible form for the purpose of communicating love, goodness, and intimacy. 
This is basically the Bible idea of God's glory, is God's full, complete, loving desire for his creation to be what he intended and to receive of and from him of that intention. The glory of God is his very best offered out from himself to his creation. You see it directly related to the tabernacle, which is where God seeks to draw near to man so man can draw near to God. Glory, then, is exerted goodness. That is why you will find strange phrases in the old liturgies and catechisms like, quote, We thank thee, O God, for thy glory. Now, before we knew better, that phrase would have sounded to our modern ears as just weird religiosity. Now we understand what God's glory is. We certainly do thank him for it. The Scottish Catechism says, The purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, now that we understand what glorifying God really means, it is inevitable that if we do glorify him, we will automatically enjoy him forever. For to glorify him means we are united with his goodness and communicating that goodness out to the rest of his creation, which in turn brings him glory, gives him the credit, the thanks, the loving admiration, on and on. We now understand what it means that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Man has failed to embrace and manifest God's intention for goodness. Sin is not breaking picky, unish religious rules, but it is a willful marring and deforming and desecrating of what was meant to be beautiful, good, and true. We can see now what a good thing it is for us to pursue glory and honor and why God is happy when we do and sad when we don't. We can also see that in a real way we share in that glory as it says in 1 Peter 5 verse 1. But we've been taught, most of us anyway, that we're never to dare seek to share in God's glory. That's something that belongs only to him. So we end up saying really silly things when we are complimented for the song we sang or the talk we gave or the act of kindness we offered. Oh, it wasn't me. God gets all the glory. And we're right when we reject such silly statements and tell people, no, I appreciate what you did. It it wasn't you that sang. It was God. I could have sworn it was you that delivered those groceries, not, not God. Now, in no way is this taking away from God's goodness and God's glory. It actually takes away from his goodness and glory when we're so busy trying to be humble, we end up saying really silly things like, it was all him and none of me. He's not interested in things being all him and none of you. That's Hinduism. That's not Christianity. It's not humility to try to X yourself off. Do you not glorify God by seeking to annihilate yourself? No, you don't glorify God by annihilating yourself. You glorify God by simply doing what God does, giving, loving, serving, all the rest of it. No one in his or her right mind would think of taking credit for the goodness that we are communicating in our song or our speech or our delivering groceries or whatever. The glory belongs only to the source of all goodness. A wave might as well claim to be the whole ocean. But when we, on the other hand, try so hard to not appear self-glorifying, then we bend over backwards denying that we even exist. We don't sound humble, we just sound a little silly and confused. The glory that belongs only to God is manifested through us when we obey Him and love Him and love people in His name. Anything else doesn't glorify God, it just confuses things. It doesn't make his true reality shine out to those we speak to when we talk like that. God is honored when we act according to his truth and character. False humility is rooted in pride. A suppressed desire for glory for ourselves has to keep denying itself with protests. Any acknowledgement we have that we're in the picture, we fear uncovers our real motive. Real humility is so fully aware of its true source of goodness 
that it is all him and not us, that it never has to bother to say so. It just receives the thank you from people and then turns to God and says, thank you. What does scripture tell us about sharing God's glory? He does not share his glory with any other God. Isaiah 48, verse 11. How can I allow myself to be defamed? My glory will I not share with another. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not share my honor with another, nor share my praise with idols. These are the most prominent verses that specify that God is jealous for his glory. The context is false gods. He will not allow devils to share in his glory for obvious reasons. But we have to ignore nearly the entire Bible and its overall message if we interpret these verses to say God does not want to share his glory with us. And that is bad, not only because it ignores many scriptures, but it communicates a deformed vision of what God is really like. It makes God seem egocentric to some people which is, by the way, the exact opposite of his glory, which is always giving out to others. It also relieves us of the call to pursue glory and honor and can make us be more comfortable with passivity and selfishness and religion. Let's stop for a moment and just try to reevaluate where we are. God's glory is his outshining goodness, given freely to his children. God will not share that glory with devils. God does intend to share it with his family, both corporately and individually. Now, before we talk about the corporate sharing of the glory of God with his entire redeemed creation, let's talk about the individual struggle, because that's where I think a lot of us get stuck. C.S. Lewis said in his masterpiece, The Weight of Glory, quote, there's no getting away from the fact that this idea of glory is very prominent in the New Testament and in early Christian writings. Salvation is constantly associated with palms and crowns and white robes and thrones and splendor like the sun and the stars. All this makes no immediate appeal to me at all. And in that respect, I fancy I am a typical modern. Glory suggests two ideas to my mind. One seems wicked and the other seems ridiculous. Either glory means to me fame or it means luminosity. As for the first, since to be famous means to be better known than other people, then I consider the desire for fame appears to me as a competitive passion and therefore of hell rather than of heaven. As for the second, well, who wishes to become some kind of living light bulb? When I began to look into this matter, I was shocked to find such different Christians as Milton, Johnson, and Thomas Aquinas talking heavenly glory And speaking of it, quite frankly, in the sense of fame or of having a good report. But not fame conferred by fellow creatures, fame conferred by God. Approval, or I might say appreciation, by God. Then when I had thought it over, I saw that this view is scriptural. Nothing can eliminate from the parable the divine accolade Well done, good and faithful servant. No one can enter heaven except as a little child, and nothing is so obvious in a child, not in a conceited child, but in a good child, as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised, not only a child, but a dog or a horse. Apparently, what I had mistaken for humility had prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest, most childlike, most creaturely of pleasures, the specific pleasure that only an inferior can have with a superior, a beast before a human, a child before his father, a pupil before his teacher, or a creature before its creator. Lewis goes on to remember that, of course, such pleasure in receiving praise can go off in 
us into the deformed self-worship that so many of us know. But that's no reason to reject the good for fear it might go bad. He concludes by saying, quote, The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive the examination, shall find approval, and shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or as a father in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3 is a verse I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on. Paul says in that verse, Whoever loves God is known by God. Well, maybe, Clay, that's why you've never heard a sermon on it. That's kind of a simplistic statement, isn't it? Whoever loves God is known by God. No, think about it. Whoever loves God is known by God. Doesn't God know everything? Well, of course. So the obvious truth here is that there is a sense of being known by God, which is intimate, personal, face-to-face, heart-to-heart, unique to only the one with whom God shares that unique relationship. Revelation 2.17 intimates the reception of a special secret name given by the Lord that no one else can share except the Lord and the one who receives it. And then on the other hand, Matthew 7, those terrible words where Jesus says, Depart from me, you practitioners of iniquity. I never knew you. There was never that intimate union. Moses set the stage for us to follow him into intimate union when he said, If I have found grace in your sight, then show me your glory. And God replied that he would cause all his goodness to pass before Moses, and he would declare his name to him. What name did he declare or reveal? Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7 tells you exactly. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, who will by no means clear the guilty. With this understanding now in place, that God is overflowing in goodness, that his glory is goodness communicated even at times in visible manifestations. How would that help you then in facing the difficulties in your own life now? The goodness of God communicated in the name of God. God's name is the Lord the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, who will by no means clear the guilty. That's God's name. That's God's nature. That's who and what God is. To receive the glory of God is to, to, to walk into and begin to taste, begin, begin to taste all the manifestations of that name. And don't be put off by the last one, by no means clearing the guilty. Because all that goes before, the mercy and the grace and the slowness to anger and the abundance of goodness and truth, that means nothing if God is soft on evil. You wouldn't want a God who doesn't include in his revelation of himself a hatred for all that is in opposition to his goodness. How will knowing that help you through the difficulties ahead. Well, this is just introductory. It's going to take a little more doing and a little more time for us to even touch the verse beginnings of this. But I want to try. The glory of God manifested in our, in our times of suffering. Let's talk about that. 
Keep in mind the definition of the glory of God that we're using here is God's best and highest good flowing out from him on behalf of his children. Think of that in light of these verses. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man or woman who stays steadfast when under trial. For when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Romans 8, verse 18. I consider that the suffering of this present time is not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to and in us. Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then shall we appear with him in glory. Colossians 1, 27. Christ in you, your hope of glory. Remember that hope in the New Testament does not ever mean a wishful hope so. But it's a guaranteed event. It's just in the future. Now, Paul's vision of the power of the glory of God over our suffering is laid out beautifully in Second Corinthians chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 3, Paul compares the glory of the giving of the law with the glory of the coming of Messiah. He shows how if the glory of the former covenant was powerful enough to cause Moses' face to shine, still it has been superseded by the coming of Jesus, and rather than written on stone, the word is now written on our hearts, with a glory now that cannot fade away. He ends that part by saying that, unlike Moses, we can remove the veil from our faces and behold the very face Moses was not allowed to gaze on. And as we behold him, both in his word and in his presence in worship, we are constantly being transformed from one level of glory to another by the Spirit of the Lord whose very presence we now live in. That's why then in chapter 4, he says, we do not give up or get discouraged or fearful or become faint with weariness. He sees the presence of Jesus in us as a beaming force of holy light. Jesus is the glory of God, the outshining of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, he is the sole expression of the glory of God, the light being, the outraying of the divine in its fullness. Though we have this glory in earthen vessels, Paul says, Only so that the glory can be proven not to be of us, we get to carry and share in it. Then he makes a list of some of his own battles, which is comprehensive enough to speak to any of us, no matter what we're facing in our life right now. He said, we were hedged in and pressed on every side, troubled and oppressed in every way, but not crushed. We suffer embarrassments and are perplexed and unable to find a way out, but not driven to despair. We are pursued, persecuted, and hard-driven, but not deserted, struck down, but never struck out or destroyed. We're always carrying about in our body the exposure to the same putting to death that the Lord Jesus suffered, so that the life of Jesus also may be shown forth as glory in our bodies. For we who live are constantly experiencing being handed over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the resurrection life of Jesus may be evidenced through our weakness and our flesh. So death is actively at work in us, but it is only in order that our life may be actively at work for you. Therefore, we do not become crushed, though our outward body is decaying, Yet our inward self is being progressively renewed day by day. For our light affliction, our small and quickly passing suffering, is serving to produce for us an everlasting weight of glory beyond all measure, excessively surpassing all comparisons and calculations, vast and transcendent glory which will never cease. All this is happening while we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are temporary, fleeting, but the things that are unseen are deathless, everlasting. Now to sum up this part, we live on a planet which was meant to be home to man in union with God. God's eternal secret plan for man was that God would have a planet and eventually an entire universe that was going to be filled with his glory to express his goodness with man at its center. Man fell short of that glory and steps had to be taken to save man and restore that glory. The battle we're now in is partly the necessary process to bring many sons unto glory, Hebrews tells us, by the things we suffer. That's how the glory is being worked into our lives. The suffering is only small and temporary compared to the glory that is to be revealed. In fact, it is not even worthy, Paul says, to be compared to it, no matter how terrible it seems on the mere earthly level. And God knows there's some terrible, terrible things that in our weakness and fleshly humanity we can hardly bear to look at or discuss. Yet, from the vantage point of the Lord, which is the only one that matters, he can actually say these things, when compared to what's coming, are not even worthy to be mentioned. Seeing that truth gives us what we need to endure the momentary battle. For we are predestined from before the foundation of the world to be conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how does that happen? Psalm 84 verse 7 says, We go from strength to strength on our journey toward Zion. 2 Corinthians 3.18, We are being changed from glory to glory. Proverbs 4.18, The path of the just is like a shining light that grows brighter and brighter till it reaches perfect noonday. 1 John 3 verse 2 It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Colossians 3 verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we appear with him in his glory. In the meantime, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the coming glory of God. So we also exult in our tribulations, for they work endurance in us. For we know that our light affliction, our present difficulty, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory For I determined that the suffering of this present is not even worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in in us. I hope you're seeing the the direct connection between suffering and glory. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Every one of these verses we could spend all our time on and not even touch the surface. But I just want to get them in your thinking and get them connected in your mind. But we see Jesus, who was made for a time a little lower than the angels for the purpose of suffering and death, now crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it was fitting for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect, through suffering. We need to spend an entire session just on that. i got to keep moving. 2 Timothy 2.10 Paul says, I'm willing to endure any suffering for God's elect in order for them to obtain salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus. Do you get the direct connection to suffering and glory? Don't think it's merely a biblical way of saying no pain, no gain, or no guts, no glory, or you have to work for your pay. That's not the idea here. Remember that God's original purpose for man 
was that man be set at the center of the created order of the universe for the purpose of sharing God's glory in and through man. Man fell short of that glory because of sin and became entangled in the kingdom of darkness. Darkness is the opposite of glory. If we remember that glory is the shining light of God communicating his goodness and that the kingdom of darkness is set in opposition to that goodness, that light, then as a result of our full identification with the kingdom of light, we will automatically then be in conflict with the kingdom of darkness. God intends whatever battles we go through, not only to prove our faith in him, but in the process, perfect that faith so that we actually are being transformed by whatever pressure the enemy sends against us. What he means for evil, God turns for our good. And we are therefore being changed from one level of glory to another by the Spirit of God who is watching over that process in us lovingly and carefully. Now this is why Scripture tells us to count it all joy when we fall into diverse trials and temptations, James 1.12. That's not some silly religious talk once you understand what's going on in the spirit realm over you. 1 Peter 1.7, In the trying of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, this trying of your faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And notice, that's not talking about praise and glory and honor um, to Jesus. It's talking about praise and glory and honor to you. Ah, It's almost blasphemous to some people. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, yet you believe in him and you rejoice with unspeakable joy that is full of glory. Now see, no longer should that be in your mind a poetic statement. It's not Peter waxing poetical. It's him saying there's an actual power, a substance, a reality that is released in you when you... um, give praise and thanks to God who you do not see and yet you believe in uh, that that there's a release of the glory of God through that. 1 Peter 5.10 The God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you've suffered a while will make you perfect, established, strengthened, and settled. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Once we define glory correctly, then these verses no longer sound religious. They no longer sound vague, poetic, and, while sadly, meaningless. They become full of meaning because glory is a substantial, present, sometimes even visible, but fully present when invisible, power at work toward and in and through us that is using the the darkness we're battling against, but he's using it against itself by allowing its evil to be the training ground for the perfecting of our faith as we honor God's faithfulness in our trust toward him, whom having not seen we love, having not seen we believe in. In that childlike trust of him, the greatest power of the goodness of God, the glory of God is being released to and through us, and everything against us then becomes for us. That's why Peter then says, after you've suffered a while, the Lord will make you perfect, complete, established, strengthened, and settled. It's not, well, after you suffer a little while, I'll finally decide to let you out of the bad times and make things a little easier for you. That's not it at all. No, it is simply necessary that we understand the fact that the current order of things in the universe that as long as there is a kingdom of darkness, as long as we are children of light, we'll be in conflict, and that conflict creates friction, which causes all kinds of trouble. And God, by his grace, sees to it. Whatever trouble darkness is causing is always being turned for our good. Whatever those trials are, whatever they're made of, 
has to do with whatever in our sphere of life is falling short of God's glory. So God works by his sovereign grace to battle that evil and in turn transform us more into his likeness, which is all the meaning of what God's glory is about. But get this, it says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestine to be conformed into the image of his Son. And those he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 tells you more what that means. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love by which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, has made us alive together with Christ when he raised him from the dead, by whose grace you are saved, and has made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might shower the exceeding riches of that grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Romans eight seventeen through 21 says, If we are his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. That doesn't mean we earn anything. Over and over it's stated this is all by grace, which means it's all emanating from the overflowing goodness of God pouring out toward man for man's restoration and the overthrow of evil. So we suffer with him against the powers of darkness because we have sided with him for goodness. And that friction is painful for a while. But no matter how painful, it is working for us a far more exceeding weight or substance of glory. So then Paul goes on to say, Therefore, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that that will be revealed in us. For the whole creation is waiting and longing for the full manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to futility, not willingly, but by reason of him who purposely subjected it to futility in the hope of the entire creation being delivered from its bondage to corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God when they are fully manifested. You see this final friction between the darkness and the light uh, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. I just love this verse. I'm, I'm increasingly in love with this verse. After these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. Just one angel, by the way. Then he cried with a mighty and strong voice, Babylon the great has fallen. Can't wait. Ephesians 3, verse 8 through 13. To me, who am less than the least of all saints, is the grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. God's intention in the creation of the physical universe is the implication. God's intention in this was so that now, the evil principalities and powers in the spirit world might see the many-sided wisdom of God through his people, the church. Obviously, this is referring to through the things God's people go through and how they manifest the glory of God in their faith, in their faithfulness, in the face of darkness. They are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So Paul then says, so don't faint at my trouble, which is on your behalf, because it's for your glory. Then he, then he shifts gears and goes into a whole other realm. For this reason, he says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the entire family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in your inner man. Remember, Paul had said in 2 Corinthians 4, 
that the outer man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day by seeing him who is invisible. And he goes on, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height, and to intimately know the love of Christ, which goes beyond mere human knowledge or human information. You, you see what he's saying here? Everything about this has to do with this outflowing, overflowing goodness of God, the glory of God. And where is it reaching? It's reaching to you. It's reaching to you. Anything that rises up in you that wants to to mitigate that somehow and saying, well, no, it's the whole church. Forget that right now. We'll talk about the whole church some other session. I'm talking about what this is saying to you. He wants you to know the height, the depth, the breadth, the length, how high he wants to take you, how deep he wants to heal you, how wide his mercy is how great his love is, so that you will know it beyond mere comprehension of information. To know intimately the love of Christ, which goes beyond mere human knowledge. What's the ultimate goal? That you might be absolutely filled with the fullness of God. That's language that belongs right now only to the Lord Jesus himself. Colossians 2, verse uh, 9, 10, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Well, he is God. You never will be. But because he has become a man, his intention in becoming a man was to make the way for you to be filled with the fullness of God. Your destiny is to be completely free of everything that falls short of the glory of God. Think about that. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can even ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church through Christ Jesus throughout all the ages, world without end. Amen. There's there's hardly a single verse and in some verses there's hardly a single phrase that I could bear to pass by because every one of them deserves at least a solid hour. What does it mean that he who by whom are all things and for whom are all things found it fitting to make the captain of our salvation perfect through the things which he suffered in order to bring sons to glory. What does that mean? Every one of those phrases needs intimate detail. When Paul talks about uh, how I reckon that the suffering of this present age is not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. He uses Greek phrases in those terms. He has to make them up. He has to compile them. He doesn't have really access to the language to, to say what he's trying to say, so he it's like exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think, which I just quoted. He had to he had to compound words. I love that about Paul. He just breaks rules of grammar in order to get the point across. See, this is so important because as we enter into the days when darkness seems to be getting darker, the light gets lighter. Daniel says that the children of the kingdom will shine like the stars. Stars shine when it's dark. The darker it gets, the more they shine. And Abraham's children were told, Abraham was told that his seed would be like the stars of the sky. So as we approach the close of the age and the process of uh, conflict between light and dark, Grows. I want you to understand, when I talk about the conflict between light and dark, I'm not talking about a contest that is yet to be decided. I'm talking about God who conquered principalities and powers at the cross. That was the end of the age. The cross was the end of the age. Everything since that time has been the working out of God's eternal purposes in the forming of the bride for his son. 
And now everything that you go through, every battle you face, every struggle you face, according to the verses that we've just spent some time in, I hope you'll just bathe yourself in those truths. Everything you're going through. I don't care how maudlin it seems to be or how how tawdry it seems to be or how silly it seems to be or how daunting it seems to be or how many times you've already been there before or how many times you've said, God, I'm sorry, I won't do it again and you fall again. All that stuff that the enemy just throws at you over and over and over. All that. You don't need to worry about about whether you're accepted in God's love or not. That's a that's not ever an issue. It's not ever an issue. I get so many emails and letters from many of you who say, I just don't feel forgiven. I don't I don't feel the love of God. Well what you're feeling is your own anger at yourself for not being perfected in your own strength. The quicker you can collapse under the weight of your own weakness and recognize it's all by grace. It's all by grace, and you're never going to find any other way except grace. And when you know you're absolutely bankrupt, and there's nothing you can do except throw yourself at the cross, then, I'm not talking about your soul salvation. That was settled when you believed in Jesus. That was settled the moment you received uh, faith in Christ. Ever since then, he's been trying to help you die. (laughs) Not trying to make you feel better. He's trying to help you die. So he brings you through these processes of death, burial, and resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection. That's how you go from glory to glory. See, you go from glory to glory, not by skipping the death and resurrection, death and burial part. You go from glory to glory by death, burial, and resurrection. And so he brings things to death in your life. Brings things to you. Say, this is killing me. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I do. Well, listen. Uh, we're running out of time here, and I, I haven't even begun yet. This has all been introductory. So by God's grace and with his help, we will get back into this in uh, a session to follow because I really want you to grasp this glorious reality. Why? Because in the darkness, if you have a vision of the glory of God, you can endure anything the dark has to throw at you because you know its time is over. Father, I thank you that you have given us exceedingly great and precious promises, and by those promises we begin to take on your nature. And you who have begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. I pray for every person listening who's really hurting right now, who's really going through maybe what they would call the hardest time of their life, that they would take these verses and not just let them speak to them in religious prose or poetic words, but really practical realities of truth. Then the prose and the poetry can have more meaning, but let's get the reality from it first, Lord. Help us get the reality of it first then we can wax poetic afterward. To you who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can even ask or think according to the power that is now at this moment at work inside of us from hearing these truths. To you, Lord, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus now and throughout all ages, world without end. Amen.